I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, where we're continuing. Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17 is what we're looking at this morning. And we're looking at the church at Pergamum. Some Bibles say Pergamos. Pergamum says my Bible. So let's look at that together. Pergamum, Revelation 2, 12 through 17. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. This is my custom, and I invite you to pray with me as we prepare. Father, This word that lies open before us, we know, is living and active. That's what your word says about it. That's what you say about it. And we need it. And even if we do not fully recognize how, it is food for our souls. And you've ordained that men should preach this word. And Father, as the one Entrusted with the proclamation of this truth this morning, I pray that you would guide my words, guide our meditations together, and may all of it together be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock and redeemer, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> to live or not to live, it very much depends, and very most basically, on bread. That is to say, food. Now, if you deny someone food, they will die. We, we get this. Starving. If you corrupt food with things that are not healthy or even poisonous, eating it will make you sick and you might die. To live or not live forever, eternally, depends on the Word of God. If you don't hear it and submit to that Word, you will die. If the Word is altered, distorted, or corrupted with lies, then you get sick and you may die. So here's a single idea that I want to put before us this morning. The promise of eternal life rests on the Word of Christ. And so as you look at this text this morning that we read together, I want to consider it under three very basic headings. I'm not very creative today, so 
maybe I'm not very often, but here's my three headings that we're going to look at this text. Jesus, Satan, and the church. And we'll unpack it under that perspective. So Jesus, Satan, and the church. So first, let's look at Jesus from this text. Now, I remember, uh, this is me, it's just something I do. I remember random lines from movies. They come back to me when I see some situation that might have been similar to that in the movie because it was humorous or something interesting. And, and one that comes back to me often, maybe you remember the movie Crocodile Dundee, and there's a scene where he's, he's walking in the city late at night with a lady, and some, some older youths come up to him and try to, to rob him, and they brandish a, a, a switchblade. And the, the lady with him says, Dundee, you, you need to give him your wallet. He's got a knife. Then he reaches in his coat. That's not a knife. This is a knife, and the thing's got a 12-inch blade on it. Well, well, we get that, and they, I mean, he wields that knife, and he cuts up the coat, and then they run off. And he says, ah, youth's just having a good time. <laughs> it's funny to me, but, but we get it, right? In, in a knife fight, the bigger knife wins. Now, the sword, a sword is not the same as a knife, but I think you get the idea. And here's what Jesus says, and I think Jesus has a big sword here. Because he's holding it. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And you might say, and I've already said it, that Jesus has the greatest sword of all. And nothing, nothing can come against him. But I want you to see this morning what that sword represents. What does the sword represent? In the Bible, sword is is certainly sometimes used as a, as a metaphor for the power that would be wielded by the one who governs, right? So an, ex- an example here from Scripture. The, Paul's exhortation to the believers that, in Romans that they should submit to those earthly governing authorities because they've been, been instituted by God. This is Romans 13. Paul explains that they do not bear the sword in vain. So sword is a, is a, a metaphor for for power to rule authority and authority. But the sword is also used as a way to describe the word of God because it it pierces, it cuts away, and it it ultimately judges. This is what the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew, this is what the writer of Hebrews, how he describes it. The word of God is living and active. And here it is, sharper than any two-edged sword. He describes what it does, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, there's the spiritual sense, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a two-edged sword. And as the means of spiritual protection, the Apostle Paul exhorted his readers in Ephesians 6, 17, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, in our text, it says that Jesus says himself, I have the sharp two-edged sword. And, and you might recognize if you read earlier and have read, read earlier, this is the self-description that Jesus gives. It all es- echoes what, what John saw in his own vision of Jesus. From Jesus' mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And, and I would say this, in, in John's vision in chapter 1, the sword that Jesus has in his mouth is because he is the one who speaks the word of God. He speaks the word of God because he embodies it, right? And, and John, in his description of Jesus as the word of God, well, John 1, 1, 
the Word of God who was God, and later, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So, so here in our text, Jesus, the living Word of God, is the one who speaks the Word of God, but he alone is also the one who has the authority to rule and exercise that authority. And this is a great assurance, I, I take it, for the church at Pergamum, but it's also a great assurance for us as the church today. And as we read, Pergamum was dwelling where Satan's throne is. And I think the fact of the matter is that it doesn't matter where you dwell, even if you dwell where Satan's throne is. And any authority, any authority that Satan thinks he has, we have to remember that Jesus' sword, his word, that authority is far, infinitely far greater. John told his readers in his first letter, his first epistle, that they have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist because greater, or he, is, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so if we were to ask the question when John says that, how is he in you? If he's greater, if the one in you is greater than he is in the world, how is, how is, that, how is he in you? Well, Jesus himself said this. If you, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And that whatever you wish, wish certainly includes overcoming the spirit of the Antichrist, resisting evil in the world. You can do that by the word of Christ that dwells in you. So hear this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Evil can and will surround the church. But the evil one, he's no match for Jesus and his word declared. Human wisdom will, will always fail to stem the tide of evil. There isn't any way to kind of intellectually work through a system so that we can keep evil at bay. And therapeutic advice will, will never release people ultimately from the bondage of sin, but only the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ can do that. And that fact alone should, should reinforce in your minds the importance of preaching Christ, preaching him from the scriptures. And, and when we gather and, and when we consider that how we might do ministry together, how we can minister to one another, we teach and we preach the word, we sing the word, we, we pray the word of Christ. We pray it because the word of Christ is piercing, excising, dividing, moving to the very core of us like a double-edged sword. Jesus is the one who wields that sword and he has given us his word. That is Christ. So he is the one delivering this message. He is the one who possesses that authority. He is the one who has the word. Christ, the sword-wielding Son of God. Well, he's wielding it in such a way for the sake of, of the church at Pergamum, understanding. And he acknowledges, this is where we get to the second section, Satan, Satan. Now, in literature... Uh, you probably know this, the character that moves the plot forward to the main goal of the story is called the protagonist. On the other hand, the foil, the, the character that seeks to thwart those goals is called the antagonist, right? So in the story of the Bible, this is obvious to us, God is the protagonist, and the Son of God is the human embodiment of all of those purposes. 
And in Scripture, we see so often that the antagonist is Satan. Now, don't get me wrong here. The Bible is not merely literature. It is that, but it's much more. It is the true account of God's plan to set apart a people to himself and, and, and to glorify, ultimately glorify Jesus in all of it. And what is true also is that Satan... And his name, his very name means adversary, is opposed to God's plan. He is truly the antagonist. And so Jesus acknowledges this. And he says in verse 13, in this letter to the church at Pergamum, he says, look, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. I know, I know where you are. I know the situation in Pergamum. I know what's around you. Now, what's meant here by Satan's throne? Now, just if we just take the use of the word throne in the text, it could be the physical seat, you know, a throne, the physical seat of a king or ruler. But, of course, that could be representative of the domain, the domain of authority and judgment, the throne. That throne, though, could also be a judge's bench. So that's, those are possibilities in considering the use of the word throne. But then we put that together, Satan's throne. We put that together with Satan himself. Now, now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, and the Bible has many examples of how, how Satan is the antagonist in God's redemptive story. So also known in the Bible as the devil, Beelzebul, the evil one, prince of demons. He is the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve to defy God in the garden. He's the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. We see that in Matthew chapter 4. He's the adversary of Jesus' disciples. He prowls around seeking to devour. That's in 1 Peter 5, 8. He will one day, the scripture tells us, be crushed beneath the feet of believers. That's good news. That's Romans 16, 20. Now, it's not exactly clear what's being referred to as a specific thing in Pergamum as as the throne of Satan. But there's some possibilities. I mean, you can think the nature of the city. There was an altar of Zeus there. Again, false god. There was also a Roman proconsul in Pergamum. And the city was called a, I'm going to get this right in Latin, conven, Conventus Irid. Iridicus, Conventus Iridicus, that's the Latin, I guess. But that, what it meant, it had the status of a capital city. So the, the presence of that proconsul there could judge on behalf of Rome. So effectively, they represented Rome in its exercising power. So authority, a local capital place of authority. And perhaps, as by very nature of the fact that these believers had been persecuted, Rome acting to persecute them, acting through the judicial system there in, um, in Pergamum. Another possibility, throne of Satan. The, the city was a, a neocorate is what they called it, and really what that was. They were the first city with a temple that was actually dedicated to emperor worship. Caesar is Lord, they were told to declare. And if you resisted that, you were resisting the Romans, right? Um. They had also, at the outskirts of a city, a, sh a shrine to uh, Asclepius, and maybe you're familiar with that. He's the god of healing. Again, a false god. And you would be familiar with this. By the way, this is in everyday stuff. 
of the rod of Asclepius depicting a snake wound around a staff. Those of you in the medical business or industry, or you also know that the American Medical Association has this thing in their symbol. It's the rod of Asclepius. Whatever that was, and, and, and aside from any judicial activity, it may have just simply been a center of persecution against Christians for the, so such that Jesus would say, it's the throne of Satan. It's where Satan dwells. All this adversarial work against believers is happening there. And whatever the illusion, there was concentrated evil, and it was a place from which Satan exercised activities that were antagonistic to Christ and his church. And it's so much so that it was a matter-of-fact part of the culture and it dominated life there. Imagine the, the, just the preponderance of evil. Everywhere you turned, every cultural activity was somehow tinged with, with the satanic, idol worship, immorality. And those influences, it seems, were tempting some in the church. So, so how is it as we consider the throne of Satan, how is it that Satan uses this diabolical power? Again, it's smaller power than Jesus, but it is power. Again, the Bible calls him an adversary. And, and his only power, understand this, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we think about the activities of the evil one, the only power of Satan is to obscure or distort the word of Christ. So just in simply stated, what Jesus says is true, Satan says is false. What Jesus says is false, Satan says the opposite. What God says is beautiful and good, Satan says it's ugly and evil. And Satan always does this because it's in keeping with his character. He is adversarial. He exists in his, in his own self-existence is to oppose the work of Christ, oppose the work of God. If God's word says it, he denies it. Jesus called him a liar and the father of lies. And, and understand this. Any, any who would buy into or propagate those lies, the scripture calls down a woe, a, a judgment, doom on those who advance them. The prophet Isaiah says in 520, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You turn this upside down, you say the opposite of what God says, woe to you. And all of that, it's, it's the lie right back to the very beginning that, that taking that fruit from the tree, well, that, that's better than obeying God. It's the lie that when somebody hurts you, that, you know what, revenge will be satisfying. It's the lie that leaving your husband or wife for a different one, well, that'll be a good thing. It's the lie that indulging your flesh in any way imaginable is better than self-control. And here's a culturally contemporary one. It's a lie that it's your body, your choice. Now, God, in fact, owns your eyes. He owns your hands. He owns your ears. He own, owns the womb of a woman. He owns your mind. He owns your mouth. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Satan's lies may look like freedom and fun, but they enslave you and they kill you if you listen to them. 
And as the antagonist, that's Satan's goal. He wants you spiritually dead. And I think you'd agree, as we think about Satan's throne, certainly the case in Pergamum, you don't have to try too hard to see how Satan has made his throne in some ways in this nation. His methods are insidious. He captures political progressives with ideologies of the sexual revolution. They're all lies. But don't fool yourself, brothers and sisters. Satan does not only have strategies that capture the minds and hearts of progressives. He also gets their traditionalists. And ask yourself, where's your own identity? Is it primarily in Christ? Or is your primary identity anti-progressive, anti-CRT, one who is more concerned about the First and Second Amendment. I'm saying those things are wrong. Saying, what's your identity? What are you the loudest about on social media? Listen, don't fall for lies. Whether left or right, Satan is happy for you to take your focus away from Jesus by distorting the truth. Jesus, Satan, his throne, and now to the church. Well, whether it's a, a motorcycle club or a hospital or, or a club that, that gets together to read novels or maybe the American Legion or, or an auto manufacturer, whatever that thing is, whatever that organization is, they have some objective. And whether that's financial gain from the enterprise, medical services for the healing of people, or, or just purely the shared interest of the participants in the hobby, but, but you know this, if, you're, if, if that organization fails to accomplish its objective, it would soon be abandoned by its stakeholders, right? Likewise, the church that fails to carry out its objective, I would say, should not be called a church. And so what is the church's prime objective? Take you to the scriptures before Jesus ascended to heaven. This is what he told his disciples. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if they were true to that mission, Jesus would add to his disciples through their witness. And the disciples indeed were faithful to it. But understand, and, and I think we agree on this, that that commission did not end with those first disciples, but it would continue to the very end of the age, as in fact Jesus promised his presence. That's Matthew 28, 20. The mission from Jesus to his immediate disciples was by extension meant for the church. And as the church holds to the very teaching of Jesus, stated in the Great Commission, as he said, obeying all that I have commanded, our mission has something to do with propagating and witnessing to the word of Christ. And, and this is what the Apostle Paul affirmed to, to Timothy, his protege. He described the church of the living God, that it's a pillar and buttress of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. So I want us to look at the church in Pergamum through this lens. The Lord acknowledges to them that they dwell where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. And this message to them includes both affirmation and a rebuke. We see that as we read it together. Well, first the affirmation. 
Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, okay, where Satan dwells, yet, okay, in spite of that, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. And why might they? Well, he goes on, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells, you did not deny my faith. They held on to the truth. Now, we don't know who Antipas was. Probably a pretty common name. But he was a faithful witness. We talked about this uh, last week or the week before, but a witness in, in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek, is martus. That's the origin of the word martyr. So the, the word witness is both about attesting to a body of teaching, which is the truth, the faith, but also holding it even unto death. Now, if we think about what it would be like to be the church in Pergamum, there is one among them who did not deny the faith. Persecution ensued in some sense, and he was killed among them. Now, for the onlookers in the local church, I can, I can imagine how rattling that would be. And, and perhaps there would be that temptation in, in light of that persecution to shrink back. Maybe some would want to avoid gathering. Well, you know what? They're, they're just coming for us. Let's, let's, let's not do that. And maybe they didn't, the temptation was not necessarily re, to, to renounce Christ, but, but just kind of make sure you don't have to talk about him. Just well, let's avoid the conversation. But you know what? Even in the midst of that severe trial, Jesus said, you did not deny my faith. He's commending them. Now the experience of Pergamum, you know, as we read that, it doesn't guarantee that we in this time and in this part of the world are guaranteed of the same kind of persecution, but we can certainly attest to the fact there are certainly Christians in other parts of the world for whom not denying Christ means they lose their heads, their homes are burned down, and all manner of hostility. For them, I can imagine that this exhortation has special significance as we pray for the, the church around the world. Now, that's an affirmation, but not everything in Pergamum was as it ought to be, and we can see that in the next section, verse 14. But, says the Lord, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And I take it here that the church, the witness of the church was being compromised because of, not all of them were doing this, but, but in some sense it seems like they tolerated. There's some there, some, not all, some who distort the gospel. And what they are doing, he describes, is holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam, this is a reference to Numbers chapter 28. So flip back in your Old Testament. There the Israelites were, had been in the wilderness. And Balaam enticed the Israelites into idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, in the end, God's judgment was carried out against the Midianites who were instrumental in that. And they were ultimately destroyed. But, but that episode, it was a blight on the Israelites. 
And so he says here, using that as an illustration, so also, so I think relating back to Balaam, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we, we saw these back in chapter, uh, in verse six of the same chapter, where the Ephesians there, the Ephesian church, they were commended for hating their works. So most, I think, New Testament scholars believe that this teaching of the Nicolaitans was like the teaching of Balaam in that, in their teaching, they promoted idolatry, they pr promoted sexual immorality, but possibly with a Christian veneer. And ultimately, it was a distortion and a corruption of the gospel, a poison. I think it was Irenaeus, he suggested that these were followers of Nicholas. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Nicholas, who was one of the seven proto-deacons in Acts chapter 6, who apparently sometime later became apostate. But whoever it was, this teaching promoted idolatry and sexual immorality, whatever it was. Now understand this, before Christianity spread through the Roman Empire, typical worship, religious practice, was directed to some local deity. And those worship practices may have included feasts offering um, meat, sacrifice to these, these false gods, but also combined with, how to say it delicately, engaging in activities involving temple prostitutes. Culturally normal stuff. And so you can imagine that those who are involved in civic life would promote a, a false gospel that kind of wrapped up some of the stuff that, that people do Let's just kind of bring it under the, the tent of Christianity, right? It's not surprising, but it is dangerous and damnable, that's for sure. That this idea that you can integrate uh, pagan stuff with, with Christianity, it's called syncretism. Maybe you've heard that word. And it's been common throughout the history of the world, right? Where Christianity's been and, and they get lax. Or where, uh, well, for example, in the, the kings of Samaria, after the division of the, the, the Israelite kingdom into two, after Solomon, the northern kingdom, they, they mixed worship with Yahweh with Baal worship. And in fact, it, what was shown in, in, in the vision to Ezekiel, in his own vision, he saw on the walls of the temple, all etched, drawn, all kinds of pagan imagery. There was syncretism. They were, they were bringing idolatry into the worship of Yahweh. They're saying, yeah, we're still faithful to Yahweh, but they included other stuff to make it more culturally palatable so that, so that everybody could get in on it. No. God hates that. We have to understand is the background, the background of, of many non-Jews who had trusted in Christ, right? That was thoroughly pagan, and Paul himself, he alludes to this in, in 1 Corinthians 6, just to get a sense of what it was like before people encountered Jesus and understood him to be the Son of God who took away the consequence of their sin and the power of sin in the present and guaranteed them eternal life. Faith in him would, should release them. And he says this in Rome, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do not be deceived. Understand something about your past. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says this, 
And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But because of Christ, he says this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were made holy. You were justified. You were counted righteous in God's sight in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Look, everything's changed. You don't embrace that stuff anymore. And just as we think about that list, and I, still our society frowns on some of these things, but some of them, well, some of them our society celebrates. And the Corinthians used to do those things. Things that would, if they continued in them, deny them entrance into the kingdom of God. But because of the gospel, because they received forgiveness in Christ, they were set free. And as we think about this, whatever your past is, whatever you have done, it is not unforgivable. But if you've come to faith in Christ, the trajectory of your life has changed. You were doing those things. You were wanting to do those things. You were celebrating those things. And now, you've turned away. And you say, that's not me anymore. Perhaps such were some of you, but you're washed. Because of Christ, you are sanctified. Because of Christ, you are counted righteous in God's sight. Now, for those who would continue in those practices, and now the rebuke to the, to the church at Pergamum, to allow those who teach such things to be among you, to partner with them in any way, that ultimately compromised the message of the gospel witness of the church. And what's the remedy? Verse 16, therefore, repent. That just means turn away, go in the opposite direction. Turning to Christ always means turning away from sin. It's not a separate thing. If you turn to Christ, you're turning away from sin. But if they didn't repent, and here's, here's the warning. Well, Jesus continues, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them, the ones who do such things, with the sword of my mouth. And there's that, that sword again, right? We see that. That's the authority of the word of God coming from the mouth of the living word of God who will judge. I will, I will war. I, I, I don't know about you, but I don't think I want to be at war with Jesus. I'm just, just saying. I don't think that's a, a winning position. Well, with Pergamum, and, and here I take it as with the other churches in chapters 2 and 3 that we'll cover them all over the next few weeks. I, I take it that the Lord is addressing genuine situations that are unique to those churches in Asia Minor, but, but those situations are also typical of what some in the church may suffer and experience and be tempted with until Christ returns. Now, we consider things here in present-day middle America. I, I think in some sense, and you probably agree, in some sense, it's not unlike first-century pagan culture. And, and so does Satan have his throne here in America? Maybe. Is his influence stealing away some of our own? Yeah, tragically, yes, that's true. And some of us have experienced the grief of family members who once professed Christ and 
found it too hard, found the world and its values to be far more attractive than Christ and walked away. And, and I know no one in this part of the world, at least to my knowledge, has been killed for faith in Christ. There is an increasing intolerance to the morality that flows from Christian faith. I just glanced over an article the other day in the Gospel Coalition website. It was by Brent McCracken. What he did was he examined how recent movies are depicting Christianity as, here's three things. So th these are themes in movies, and there's more. Depicts Christians as those who suppress authenticity. Depicts Christians as rejecting science. Depict Christians as enabling abuse. And in short, the message is, well, they're backward and ignorant, right? And just as we think about the trajectory of culture, as culture goes, first what you do is you mock the thing you hate. So the culture mocks Christianity. You do it through an, inac an inaccurate caricature. But then at some point along the, the continuum, you, you label it as dangerous. And then you make it illegal. Now, we're not there yet, but we can see where we are in the progression, right? Christians believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And they say, that's dangerous. And they say, you can't say that out loud. That's hate speech. I suspect it's not far in the future. So the question is, brothers and sisters, will we hold fast the name of Christ? This warning here in Revelation is a reminder. It's like other tragic stories in the scriptures that have been written down in order to acquaint us with the danger and then to drive us, to drive us to, to more tightly cling to Christ, right? As the Apostle Paul, he warns in, in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore, and this is, this is for all of us, let anyone who thinks that he stand, I'm in a good place, let anyone who thinks who, that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Take heed, don't, don't be self-confident, but be vigilant about the dangers. Now, that's just not a bad news statement that Paul makes. So here's the good news. He continues. However, I'm putting that word in, but this is true. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, the evil around us. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Brothers and sisters, we have the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. So if the culture rages against the church, if some among us are persecuted for faith in Christ, even to the point of death, we have a way of escape, not from the suffering, but a way of escape, escaping the temptation to collapse, the temptation to fold, the temptation to just cower. And that's the gospel itself. So, verse 17 we must conquer. We must conquer. Now, now what's the reward for endurance? If you do conquer, what's the reward? Verse 17, the Lord says, He who has an ear, let him hear. This is a message from the Spirit. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says this, a little, little bit esoteric here, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. Like I said, a little, little obscure, hidden manna and a white stone. 
Now, Bible, I have to admit here, Bible scholars are all over the map and what that hidden manna is. I'm going to tell you what I think, though. So we have to think about what the manna is. In the Exodus, after the Exodus, they were rescued from Egypt, the Israelites. They were hungry, and, and they had nothing to eat, and they cried out to the Lord. And what he did was he gave them bread from heaven. It was called manna. Now, we're told in Deuteronomy why God did this. Why did God let them hunger? God did this not just to feed their bellies, but he wanted them to he wanted to teach them something. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 8.3. And, and I'm relating this back, so follow me on the logic. This is what God said. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. To what end? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, do you remember when Jesus was tempted to make stones into bread. This is what Jesus responded to the devil, to defeat him. Now, if the manna given to the Israelites in the wilderness was to teach them to depend on God's word, then Jesus quoting this was heavenly manna that sustained him, the Son of God, when tempted. And so this is true for us as well. Now, in our text, I want you to consider how Jesus appears to John. Okay, that's the manna, bread from heaven, words from God, right? Remember how Jesus appears to John and how Jesus described himself as a, with a sword coming out of his mouth. And that sword, you recall, we talked about, is both a word of judgment, but it's also a word that rescues. It cuts away what is false, and it's a word that ultimately feeds our souls, not for just now, but forever. Jesus said this when he was teaching in the wilderness and drawing these ideas together. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now the comparison. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, says Jesus, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread that i will give for the life of the world is my flesh so so this sword in the mouth of jesus both judges but also sustains the, the word will judge and destroy the unrepentant but it will comfort the contrite and for the believer the living word jesus himself is the bread from heaven and he will be our comfort and joy forever See the connection? This is what you get. You hold to the word. You get the word, the living word, forever. That's a reward. We have Christ forever. Well, verse 17 continues, and this is other obscure part. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is a little less clear to me possible allusion here to the stones that were used in Roman times as public uh, tickets, the white stone, pub, uh, tickets to public events. So you'd have to have the stone to get in. But alternatively, that stone, and the word here is kind of unique in the, the original. It's not lithos, like a, a stone that was rolled in front of Jesus' tomb or, or a stone the builders rejected. It's not that kind of stone. It's a, it's a different word. It's um, psuthos. It's a different word. 
It referred to an ancient justice tradition. A white stone given in a, in a trial indicated acquittal. A black stone was for condemnation. So the white stone here, I, I take it, it represents the, the acquittal. This is the, this is the reward you get. When you stand before the court of God's judgment, you've got the white stone with your name on it. And you know it's for you, and it's your name, and it's not transferable. This is your white stone. This is your justification. Brothers and sisters, this is the reward for all of us who endure, who conquer, who resist the influence of the throne of Satan. For us, as we gather together and, and seek through the proclaimed word of Christ to stem the tide of evil, at least as it, as it concerns our own lives, One day we'll all stand before the judgment seat and we'll be given that white stone declared righteous. It's a glorious gift. And ultimately these two rewards, the hidden manna, Christ himself forevermore, the stone of justification, these are just ways of describing the gift of eternal life for the one that overcomes. So brothers and sisters, we've been made alive by the word of Christ. The church is protected and sustained by the word of Christ. And we will have eternal joy, joy in Christ himself, the word of life. Message to Pergamum, and I believe a message for us he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, we are so desperately needing your word. And, and Father, I, I long for all of us never to lose sight of that. There are so many things that can compete for our attention and to forget the very power is what Christ declared, this whole book of, of your word. God, keep us. Keep us ever faithful to it, to proclaim it, to submit to it, to love it. Father, that in so doing, we know it is not a, an effort of our own, but ultimately the work of your spirit in dwelling us because we have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. But God, we know that your spirit works with your word to sanctify us and to protect us and to bring us all the way home. So keep us faithful, we pray, to that day. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.